and a hearty welcome to one and all. This is episode 44 of the Confessions of a Not-So-Dangerous Mind podcast. I want to thank you all once again for joining me. If you're checking out the podcast on the YouTube channel, haven't done so already, please click like and subscribe. Don't forget to turn on those notifications. Or if you're joining me on the audio platforms such as Spotify and iTunes and the others, and you haven't done so already, same drill. Don't forget to click like, subscribe, and turn on those notifications so that you immediately get word when a new episode drops. Many of you know that um, I am a writer. Some of you know that I work for magazines. Um, I was with an online company for a while, had a really fancy title, director of operations. Didn't work out, the company went under. I was one of the first people to get an iPhone 4. Um, CEO, such as he was, gave everybody an iPhone 4. And uh, man, what a quantum leap forward that baby was, huh? But my primary focus has always been screenwriting. As an NYU film school student, at the time I started writing screenplays, um, you know, I didn't take classes in creative writing, dramatic writing, or screenwriting. I learned the craft as I went along, reading books on screenwriting. Uh, I relied on my significant knowledge of movies, why films work, why films don't work, why stories work, don't work, all of that kind of stuff. So I guess this is going to be the first in a series of my kind of misadventures in the screen trade because uh, I have been through some real weird shit, some strange circumstances that never quite went the way they were expected to, the way I expected them to, and in many cases, the people I was working with expected them to. So it was the spring of 1995, 21 years old. Bill Clinton is not even halfway through his first term as president, and I am full-time undergraduate at New York University. And I just wanted to, I always had the instinct to write, but I had never actually done anything more than write kind of random short stories. And I said, you know what? I love movies. I've always wanted to write something actually to completion. I'm just gonna put my head down and do it. So I wrote my first screenplay, which was semi-autobiographical. Um, about a pretty disastrous scenario that occurred during my senior year in high school, which I talked about in a previous podcast, the Cliff Notes version. I had a crush. I was not mature enough to handle my feelings. I had social anxiety disorder and pretty much melted down again and again and again. Never got anywhere with that. But that was the substance of my first screenplay. I turned it around a little bit. I made it so that the main character was not struggling in school. He was getting ready to go to Columbia, and he was an academic superstar, but he has social anxiety disorder. That's why he hasn't dated or had a normal social existence as far as interacting with perhaps women he might be attracted to. And when he tries to do so, he slowly disintegrates. And it's a very negative, almost an angry story because I wrote it pissed off because I was essentially telling an angry story from my own past and just trying to make it even worse, <laughs> you know, because it's more cinematic if the stakes are high, that kind of thing. My craft was shit, but I worked at it. And 
By the time I finished my coursework at New York University, I was reasonably competent. And I wrote a cop thriller, sort of a serial killer, uh, not really seven, it was closer to copycat. And that actually got some interest from a producer who had won an Emmy uh, back in the 90s for uh, you know, a TV movie. And that one nearly got set up. You know, it was optioned, but it, it didn't go further. And then, um, so I had written a couple of screenplays. I wrote, I wrote an I did an attempt at a spy thriller. It didn't come off the way that I wanted to. And that, one, that was one where my craft, not being up to par, hurt because that had this kind of the, the substance of a good idea. It could have worked, but I just didn't have, the, I didn't have the skill to pull it off. And the same with this kind of copycat, uh, serial killer, cop thriller type thing. The early drafts just, they just were very loose and disorganized. And there was a lot of just shit going on that was not essential to the story or building character. But point was, I continued writing and I continued tinkering and figuring out ways of setting scenes, enter late, get out early, all of the sort of things that uh, screenwriting 101 would teach you and screenwriting 201 and master's level would teach you. Sometimes it's not about the creativity, it's about learning how to put your vision down on screen. I would say on paper, but it's on screen. So during the time that I graduated or after I had finished my coursework would be more accurate, I decided to do an adaptation, which I had not done before. Of course, I had just been knocking out these. I did a screenplay called Twelfth of Never. Uh, that was my first. And then I did a kind of sequel to Twelfth of Never, which was really not good, called Fundamental Difference. Like, I was still working out my own issues, and I was doing it. I was attempting to be creative, and I feel like I somewhat succeeded with the first one. The second one, fuck the tank. Um, I wrote a screenplay that later was optioned, but the early versions were not good. And then the spy thriller called Model Hero didn't work. So I decided, why don't I try to adapt my favorite book of all time? And my favorite book of all time back then, I don't know that it would still be the same answer now, was a kind of children's slash young adult novel by a terrific writer who I believe has passed by the name of Alfred Sloat. And Alfred Sloat is kind of in the ballpark of like a Judy Bloom or a uh, Beverly Cleary. He wrote those kinds of books where they were technically for kids, but he wrote them so beautifully that there's enough, and there's a lot of kind of winking at adults in his work, in a good way, not in a condescending kids are stupid way, but it's like, to a lesser extent, the way J.K. Rowling wrote the Harry Potter books for younger people, but there's a lot of great stuff for adults to kind of latch on to and say, okay, I'm enjoying this too. I'm not reading this because I have to keep up with my kid. This is great stuff. So Alfred Sloat wrote a number of books which ended up turned, being turned into successful films, one of which was uh, also a baseball story called Finding Buck McHenry. And he had a number, he actually wrote a book on cloning, a, a young adult book on cloning, which got a lot of interest from Hollywood when that sheep called Dolly uh, in, in the mid-90s when they were able to clone Dolly. But the book that I fixated on with him, which just happened to have purchased when I was about 10 or 11 years old, was called The Biggest Victory. 
I read it cover to cover at least 50 times. Now, when I say that, this was not War and Peace. This was not James Joyce's Ulysses, okay? This was a book that you could knock off in an hour. But the writing was so clean and every beat was so precise, I just read it again and again. And the book was released in the early 1970s. And as Sloat later, I later found out, um, it was not one of his best sellers, but it was a work that he always liked. And he personally, as the author and as a super successful author, he never understood why that book didn't make more of an impact because he, he told me, spoiler alert, he told me himself, I never understood why more people didn't react to this the way you did. It was some of, if not my best writing. And then, we, you know, he actually told me about certain scenes, but I'm getting ahead of myself. It was a book that came out in the 70s. It was set in the probably late 50s, early 60s. The time period is not expressed, but based on the cars and all this kind of shit, it could have been late 60s, possibly. But it's set in Michigan, and it's about a, a young boy, an 11-year-old boy, who is very intelligent and very athletic. He comes from a family of great baseball players, and his uh, older cousin is like, would be a pro prospect, even at such a young age, where he's just a wizard on the diamond. His uncle played for a big college, his father played for a big college, his cousin's on his way and might have pro potential. He sucks. He loves baseball, he knows the game, but he is a terrible baseball player. And this is the substance of drama that kind of, in the book, the friction between father and son. He doesn't want to play. He doesn't want to play baseball. He wants to just watch. He's okay just watching his cousin, who's kind of a, a somewhat comic antagonistic character as presented in the book. And that's basically the substance of the story, is that he doesn't want to play. He, without giving it away, because the book is really beautifully written and marvelous, he does something heroic, gets injured, and that is his, his out of not having to play baseball the particular summer that the story it, you know, covers. And he goes, he becomes a coach for the Little League team that he's on. And he ends up having to play in the final game. And that's basically the substance of the story, where it, there is a slow, gradual build. And despite all of the kind of light moments and nothing horrendously serious happens, nobody's going to, like, it, there's not a conventional good guy, bad guy structure at all. You have a hero who is a good kid. His family loves him. Like, this is, not, this is not a story of alcoholism or a story of sports betting. This is a story about a kid not coming of age. It's not a coming of age story in the book. This is a story of a kid just trying to make his way and grow up and not have to play baseball, crying out loud. I understand my cousin Teddy is a superstar and that my dad and my uncle were both tremendous baseball players. I suck. I don't want to play. You have to play. Go from there. That book just spoke to me as a child who was a huge baseball fan in general, that I loved the sport and, and learned so much about the history, reading books and everything, Yankees in particular. But this is not that story. As a young boy who played baseball, was, was good. I wasn't, you know, I had no future in baseball. I was barely would have been able to make a high school team if I had stuck with it. I didn't have any special skills for baseball. I had good instincts, 
You know, I was a kid at age six and seven, knew that if you left the base and somebody caught the ball, you know, like I actually engineered an unassisted triple play when I was eight years old. I was the only one on the field who knew the rules. And I'm playing first base and had a little squibber in the air to me. And I stepped on first and I ran across the diamond and stepped on third because a kid on third wandered off the base and you know which end was up. So I was that kid, not super talented, but very petty. So I decided this is the book that I'm going to adapt into a screenplay. So I started thinking, how am I going to do this? And I decided, how about we do something a little off the beaten path? The story has the main character at age 11, and the, the only, the closest in the story to an antagonistic force is someone you don't get to know that well. It's a kid on another team. An 11-year-old who basically is the best pitcher at that age that anybody has ever seen. So this would be like those years with the, with the um, Little League World Series where you have a kid throwing 70 miles an hour from 46 feet and nobody can hit him. This is that kid and his name is Bob Skenecki. What a great name, Bob Skenecki. And everybody is scared of Bob Skenecki. And meantime, as an adult, he's a little kid. He's like four foot ten, but everybody is petrified because he is such a dominant pitcher. And the, the story essentially builds to the main character, Randy, in a big spot, spoiler alert, has to face Bob Skenecki. Well, I decided to do something a little bit different. I made the main character 13. He's starting to go through adolescence. His voice is changing. He's starting to look at girls a little bit differently. There is no Bob Skenecki in my screenplay. Made it a girl, a young lady, Jen. I kept the last name. Jen Skenecki doesn't really roll off the roll off the tongue the way Bob Skenecki does. Jen Skenecki on another team, on the same team, and the two of them click. They start seeing each other at the age where they neither has a driver's license, wink, wink. But there is a bit of a romantic angle to the story now and a coming of age concept. So I wrote the screenplay and it was titled The Biggest Victory. And then I started to think in terms of, well, maybe this isn't really the best title. One of the, one of the best moments, really, and, and kind of wow moments from Al Sloat in the novel is that when the father and son, when the, when the dad is arguing with Randy, the main character, and the kid is saying, this isn't important. Dad, this is life. You're talking about baseball. And the father says, baseball is life. Because to him, they're one and the same. His successes and failures in baseball are a microcosm in his mind. It's not just a game. It's not just a game thing. So I retitled the script, Baseball is Life. It's not as good a title as The Biggest Victory. But given that I had altered the story, I had removed certain characters, I had changed the sequencing of certain events, and now I had this love story angle, I didn't think Baseball is Life was that great a title either. So, the movie, Love and Basketball, 
with, um, was it Sanaa Lake? Remember who her co-star was. That hadn't come out yet. I came up with a title in 1997 in Love and Baseball, as in All's Fair in Love and Baseball. And a number of characters that were kind of in the background, in the shadows, in the book, I made more important in my screenplay. So I did a lot of work on it, and I wasn't in school anymore. I had graduated in May of 1997. Bill Cosby, the commencement speaker, New York University, spring 1997 graduation. Look it up. It was Cos. Bill Cosby. Gave a great speech, by the way. Didn't get into any of the stuff that, you know, he didn't say anything like, I need men to have more respect for, for what? No. He just gave a straightforward speech. It was terrific. Told us he was proud of our hard work. They don't give the diplomas out here. And it's okay to continue to live with your parents until you get it together. Nobody hits it on the first shot out of the box. You're all young, take your time, work as hard as you can, but don't set arbitrary time limits, terrific speed. So I finished a draft of the script that I was comfortable with. As I say, retitled, In Love and Baseball, and saying on the title page, adapted from the novel, The Biggest Victory by Albert Sloan. sent the screenplay to a production company that had kind of advertised on their early era website that they accepted uh, so-called unsolicited submissions. Now, I have actually found that that's usually, and when I say usually, like at least 95% of the time, that's not true. That's bullshit. They, may, they might say they do, but what happens is the script, in the old days where it used to be like actual delivery, it would end up in the garbage. In this particular instance, the guy that wrote that was serious. About two weeks after I sent a hard copy of In Love and Baseball to the production company that advertised, we want an Emmy for such and such a movie. I get a phone call from a guy who I did not recognize his name, but I recognized the production company and I knew the head of the production company was a very successful, I'm not gonna name him now, but a very successful TV actor like one of the top TV actors in the 80s and 90s, still around there. Told me how much he loved the script, and he asked if I had the rights. I said, no, I, I don't. I just kind of went ahead and, you know, I just went ahead and, and wrote my screenplay. I didn't know that anybody would be interested. He said, oh my God, this is terrific. You know, I, I'm going to take a look at the book, uh, my local library. Like he had already Googled the 1997 version. His local library had the book. He wanted to compare it to see what I had done. So he told me I'd, I'd like to option the material. Now, my company, my production company, this is him talking, we don't have a studio deal. You would think that we would have a studio deal because we just won an Emmy, but we don't have a studio deal. What that means in normal person parlance is that he wasn't going to be able to give me a significant amount of money up front. Whereas if, for example, his company had a deal with Disney, he would have been like, Jerry, I want to option the material for three years, and I'll give you $25,000 a year if you promise not to show this script to anyone else. Let me try to get it made. In the alternate runout, if we reboot The Matrix, he would have had a studio deal, and that's what would have happened. But in reality, he didn't. So it was more of a, I have a contact at Disney, 
I know a guy over here. I'm quite confident I can get this set up because there's always a market. And again, this is 1997. Maybe there's no longer a market now, or maybe there never really was a market because baseball films are tricky. But he said, I know that I can get this set up. This is really, really good. And it's, it's, the writing is solid. It's charming. It has the moments of humor. And you're really invested in the story, despite the fact that there are a lot of moments where nothing earth-shattering is taking place. So first, first things first, I've got to clear the rights to this story with the author. Let me take care. So he gets in touch with Al Sloat's literary agent, and they go back and forth. And then Al Sloat, as they're trying to navigate, you know, potential deals, he apparently tells his agent, hey, I'd like to, I'd like to talk to this kid that, that did this. I'm, I'm interested to hear why he chose this book out of all of my books. So on a random Saturday morning after the gym, I get a phone call from Alfred Sloat. Now, I had already been a fan of this guy for a dozen years, and here he is calling me on the phone to talk shop. He's like, yeah, I, I wanted to call you earlier. I was out walking the dog. Uh, you know, I'm, you don't have to call me Alfred because his name on the books was always Alfred Sloat. But he said, just call me Al. You don't have to say Mr. You're a writer. I, uh, my, my agent's telling me he looked at, he looked at your script and um, he says he can tell it's well-written. He's just kind of buttering me up. But he wanted to know, he just wanted to know, what was it about this book? He said, I, Hollywood's never been interested in this. I always thought it was some of my best work. And then he talked about a scene it's actually the scene, it's a critical scene where the main character of Randy engages in this heroic act. And he felt that was probably the best writing of his entire career. And nobody said anything. Like this was a super successful guy and he was chapped by the fact that nobody had taken their cap off and said, hey, this was good. There were people who liked the book, but it did not make any real impression. Whereas books like Finding Buck McHenry, My Robot Buddy, and a few of his others that got adapted or went deep in the process where he made a lot of money, Nothing. So we had an amazing, about a half hour conversation. And you know, when we hung up, he said, you know, I, I really like, I like what you told me. I haven't read your script yet, but I really like what you told me. And I'm interested to see it and look at it. And I really hope we can make a deal because I always thought this would make a good move. So hope to talk to you soon. Thanks, Jeremy, whatever. That was the conversation. And Sloat was, he was in his mid to late 60s at the time. As I say, 26 years ago, almost 27 years ago. Alas, there was no deal to be made for the film rights because Sloat's agent, who had been through this many times and had recently the Finding Buck McHenry project, um, he ended up being able to get that, get that going and Sloat made a shit ton of money for the option on that material, but it came from on high. Like that was Disney Touchstone or One Notch Below or again, a company that had a deal with Disney that was able to do that. So the offer that we made was 50% that slow would get half of anything I ever made. We didn't want to pay him any money up front, but whatever monies I accrued for the script, ancillary rights, sequel rights, whatever it was, we don't want, we're not going to pay you any money up front. Nobody's got a studio deal here, but if this Cohen kid ends up making six figures, you're going to get 50%. This is can't lose. All you're doing is giving up the film rights to a book that nobody, in, 
How many years? It would have been 35 years. Nobody has asked for the rights in 35 years. What do you have to lose? Sloat wanted to do it. The agent basically said, we can't, it's bad for business, and no deal was struck. And the project died right then and there. That hurt. That was a situation where it was, you know, through no fault of my own. I mean, shit happens. That's Hollywood. When we say, and I've, I've used the phrase, nobody knows anything. This is not that. This, is, this was purely business. This was an author wanting to make a deal, but being swayed. This is not good for the long term. This is a, a precedent you don't need to be setting. Hey, maybe he won't be the only one. You know, the, the book had come out, another printing, whatever. They thought that maybe somebody else would be interested and make an offer, but nobody ever did. And I was able to use that screenplay, but not as a potential, oh, would you like to, because this, this producer had an option on it, so I wasn't free to show it. He did tell me that I could use it as um, what was no, what's known in the business as an open assignment piece, whereas, for example, if somebody's casting a net for a baseball script, hey, we need writers who are comfortable writing about baseball. Now, I ended up doing a different, better baseball script, but you could submit for that. Or if you get referred to, for example, as a young you know, screenwriter, as I was at the time, to a literary agency, this would be a piece that you would send as a writing sample to show that you have an idea of what you do. Not necessarily that you're the greatest, but that, hey, this is really well-written. So before I close this episode, I did use this script, my script, which was useless from a marketing standpoint for two reasons, no book rights, and this producer owned the option. And so I was pretty much stuck that I couldn't take this anywhere, and neither could he, because we didn't have the rights. And then we started kicking around, could we maybe uh, pretend that you didn't adapt this book, you make more changes? No, not do that, that was not something that was ever going to happen. But I got a referral to a big literary agency. I don't know that they're, they might have kind of reconstituted again all these years later, but um, I used it as an open assignment piece, and I snagged a big-time literary agent. This was um, late 1997, just on the strength of this. And he thought the script was so solid Again, he didn't say it was a masterpiece, but he thought in terms of The Sandlot, which was a more recent film, it was less than five years old at this point, and he, you know, this guy was a real character. I, again, I won't name him, he's, he's since passed away, but he was really sharp and a brilliant agent who had a huge amount of respect in Hollywood. Like, once I dropped his name, oh yeah, man, he's really smart. He said, you know what? You're not David Mickey Evans. David Mickey Evans was, uh, guy who wrote The Sandlot, he worked on Radio Flyer and some other stories with, with kids, young adults. He said, you're not David Mickey Evans, but this is really good. This is really, really good. And I want to take you on as a client. Um, and I can't wait to see, you know, some of your other work. You just got out of college. You're such a young guy. Um, I look forward to a productive working relationship. So for somebody like me who was just about to turn 24, I was doing cartwheels. Even with the disappointment that this guy thought that in love and baseball was already going to be set up 
and both of us were going to get paid significant amounts of money. And then I was going to have to do probably a lot of rewrites, or maybe they would just fire me, and I would get paid for rewrites I didn't do, whatever it was. But even with absorbing this, this significant blow of getting the hopes up, we're going to get a deal. We can't do anything. Well, now it's, hey, you got an agent at a big firm. He's going to look at your other stuff to see which of these can we work on and which of these can I take to market. Let's make some money, kiddo. That's baseball, Susan. But that's Hollywood, which is that you never know what's going to happen. Nothing is guaranteed until contracts are signed. And even then, it might not exactly be ironclad guarantees. Don't get ahead of yourself. And for sure, don't spend money that you haven't made yet. Don't celebrate before it's all over. Now, I did celebrate when In Love and Baseball was optioned. And we're definitely going to get a deal on this. I celebrate. And then I celebrated again when I signed with a big literary agency and a terrific agent. Don't pop the champagne corks just yet. And with that, a little bit of a cliffhanger, but I promise you I will continue this story. We've come to the end of episode 44 of the Confessions of a Not-So-Dangerous Mind podcast. If you're checking out episode 44 on the YouTube channel and haven't done so already, please don't forget to click like, subscribe, and turn on those notifications. I will be back with episode 45 real, real soon. Peace.